and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Welcome to episode 21 of Why Make. Today we are talking with Madison, Wisconsin-based artist and educator, Sylvie Rosenthal. We discuss her fascinating 2018 show at the Villa Terrace Decorative Arts Museum in Milwaukee called House of Risk, and all the implications of taking risks in one's work. We also talk about the way in which Sylvie seeks to put many layers of understanding and interpretation in her work, but ultimately leaves it to the viewer to determine meaning. So take a chance, roll the dice, and join us for the next hour as we discuss risk with Sylvie Rosenthal. So welcome, Sylvie, to uh, Why Make. So we've been talking about photography here a little bit and, you know, presenting yourself professionally. And I'm going to jump the gun because we were looking through some of your work and your most recent stuff is like shot in this sort of like wonderful old house. It's like, Maybe like possibly my grandmother's house with this old uh, old wallpaper and old funky old furniture, wainscot and trim, and it all it all looks is, amazing. Yes is 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 that a, is that a photography setup? Is that your grandmother's house? Where where no. was that work shot? Uh, that work is shot at the Villa Terrace Decorative Arts Museum in Milwaukee. Of friend and colleague, my friend Vanessa Diaz and I had a two-person show there called House of Risk. And it's an old um, mansion that we sort of dug into the history of the of how the house was built and the money and the industry behind the house and the placemaking in Milwaukee. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting place because it's a decorative arts museum without a collection um, or a very limited severely, you know, very limited collection. And the house was donated to the city of Milwaukee after it had been in disrepair, but it has, it's an old lakefront mansion that was built by the A.O. Smith company, which did a number of things. One being, does their engineers design the mechanical marvel for Ford that allowed them to make chassis at speed but before that, A.O. Wow. Smith has always been in the Milwaukee steel business, made bike tube frames, then they went to car chassis, and then their their engineers were very forward thinking, were the first people to fuse glass to steel for things like the lining of, of brewing containers. We think of Milwaukee as a brewing city, but also more importantly for water heaters. And mm-hmm. AO, the A.O. Smith company is still a multinational commercial and residential water heater company, but the house wasn't, they built the house. It stayed in the family for a relatively short amount of time before it went into disrepair, which there were a lot of these houses in Milwaukee, but it was built as an Italianate mansion and sort of thinking about displacement and how you make place and bringing place. And it was built pre-electricity um, and all the sort of thinking about all the labor and that time in history that a lot of that came out of thinking through that. Right. So that show was a lot about that specific place. It was thinking about that environment in terms of creating that show. Yeah, that environment 
and the tropes in history, like the the room with all that, um, the the very ornate wallpaper is this fancy French wallpaper that's very exotic, and it has this bamboo runner lining it, and you mm-hmm. know that's chinoiserie, which has a huge furniture and decorative arts history, and it's sort of the the idea of the exotic, but it was actually if you look at the plant culture, whether, you know, it's, it's exoticism to an extent. Um, And what are some other things? Yeah. Just thinking about the time and place and some of, you know, that the museum's a a bit of a funky place um, and thinking about the, the industry and sort of like the history of Milwaukee as a place and who came there, who was the workforce what was the racial makeup like, you know, thinking about a lot of those things and also how that rippled out like the uh, late 1800s to the 1940s when the house was lived in. In the 1960s, it went to the city um, and that we have like uh, like the bear cabinet that's in there. That's exactly is, what I was going to mention. Um, the 1940s brings the rise of the um, idea of the natural history museum display and how we think about taming of nature. Um, And the idea that mahogany had this um, was very in vogue 1800s. It was so, so, so popular with Mm -hmm. um, new England furniture makers for the most part, but by the 1800s, there was only one commercially viable species of mahogany. The other two were already on the CITES um, endangered species, um, non-tradable. But if we look at these, so I'm really interested in how biological material, mostly plants, has moved around the world and also our impact with it, right? Like wood is the material that has humans have used the longest for domestic purposes, like forever, right? From our cooking Mm -hmm. utensils to our housing to everything and how um, plants travel with economies, um, the gift trade and what, and the implications within that. So mahogany, for instance, the clearing of mahogany in the Caribbean has unfortunate and direct ties to sugaring plantations, the clearing of land and making space for sugaring plantations and the changing of ecologies, economies, and lives. I don't, you know, I don't like to get too much inside baseball here. I like to somewhat appeal to at least two out of our three listeners. So I'm going to explain sites as best as I can, because I believe I don't even know what it stands for. It's C-I-T-E-S. Um, and it is a UN organization that uh, I don't believe they have any legal controls or any enforcement ability, but they do list endangered species and endangered uh, endangered products around the world. Like, you know, you can't trade in elephant tusks and, and ebony and rosewood and various other things because sites has, I'm assuming scientifically 
um, determined that these things are. So they're kind of uh, a watchdog organization. For yeah, that's endangered. actually the perfect thing. Okay. They're a watchdog organization. So uh, anyways, that that's a cool. little aside on sites. And you were you were talking about uh, the use of mahogany around the world and and how it it has sort of a greater global socio political um, background. Yes, yes, it does. Um, and yeah, so so the the bear cabinet is made of mahogany, mm-hmm. um, and where whether it's you know it's in some ways it's very important to me that it's you know, it's the best mahogany that we can get now, you know, like I am not getting Caribbean mahogany because it is not actually possible or viable or ethical to do so. But the other kinds of mahogany and how um, things travel around the world and also, so with the bear cabinet, it's this uh, large stuffed bear cut in half and stood up to be as tall as a grizzly bear. So The intention is to play with the idea of how we know what we know, right? Like we know that a bear is a real animal, whether we've seen one in real life or not. And we know that a teddy bear is riffing off of a bear. And, you know, we can dig into that American political history of how these things traveled their course and how this information and what they symbolize changes over time. And that it, so it also has to do with the taming of nature, which comes from several angles, right? Through the teddy bear, through the display of the Natural History Museum, um, and people using their like air quote, like best judgment of the mm-hmm. time, but it still is exoticizing, you know, like all of these animals were actual animals that had a history. Like the the gorilla in the Natural Natural History Museum in New York has a really wonderful and problematic history that that specific gorilla like killed someone trying to capture it. And that we think of them as these, um, we almost like plasticize these animals and make them unreal or like we displace them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea of the bear cabinet is that it's just, it's not, traditionally useful in traditional furniture use. Like it doesn't have a back, it doesn't have shelves, yet it's made with care and precision, you know, and I gave the bear like claws and paws and none of these in my work, none of it is supposed to like settle out and make again, like air quotes sense. The idea is that um, I think of it more as like intersecting flight patterns where things like make sense and attach at attachments um, or like intersections and then it can fall away and you rebuild it and it falls away and they make sense when certain things overlap and then another thing makes it all fall apart. Right. And actually, so what's the name of that show again that you did in Milwaukee? House of Risk. House okay. of Risk, right? Could could you describe some of the the rest of the work that you did in that installation? Because I think it's a fascinating show, and I I think your description of the bear cabinet and its role in that show is is great. So the other pieces are equally great. So if you could paint a picture of the rest of the work in that show and sort of again where it was coming from. Yeah. So I had a another large piece that was in it was was a still life. Um, and that piece is called Still Life as Oasis. Um, and that one is directly thinking about 
um, the history of the business that made um, the mansion that is the decorative arts museum. Um, and w- one of the things that came along in my research of the A.O. Smith company is that, and I, and I, it's interesting to look back two years later and mm-hmm. see how work always changes meaning and evolves. And in the World War II wartime economy, the government compelled people and compelled private businesses to make things for the war, right? Even A.C. Gilbert's toy company was compelled to make things for the war. Yeah. Almost everybody transitioned into to making stuff for the war. Everybody transitioned, and the A.O. Smith company made a staggering amount of bomb casings. Yeah. Um, and wow. so for this, I was thinking about how you can do, you can try to do so much good, and it's not a judgment, like wartime economy, is like, you know, they were fighting World War II. Is that a good thing? Sure. I am a like 100% Ashkenazi Jew. Do I think it's a good thing that like to fight the Nazis? Yes. Um, wartime economy, bomb making, questionable. So the idea, I made this large table that is made of Wisconsin white oak. And one half of it is a sawhorse, a sawhorse that is a traditional Italian design. The house is designed in an Italianate style with a a butcher block breadboard end. Mm -hmm. Um, Very traditional, historical. And as the table transitions, there's a zigzagging joint of um, the second half of the table. It's about 11, 12 feet long is made out of Stoughton trailer bed which um, Stoughton Trailers is a major player in the trailer making industry that is a huge commercial, you know, like every everything comes on tractor trailers. So it's made of Stoughton Trailer Bed, thinking about the histories huh. of transportation um, and logistics. And on one side of the table, I have this plastic, um, all these plastic plants, sort of the, yeah. the tropes of the still life, this hand-carved skull teapot, some fruit that I have marbleized, and underneath the table, so everything is thinking about a lot of layers. On top of the floor, I have carpet padding and I've relayed another floor thinking about all the layers and how things are put together. And along with this, in this work, there's this plastic fruit and a stopwatch that have all been (laughs) marbled. Um, I've been working on a process to marble large three-dimensional objects as, again, it's another um, decorative arts tactic, but also thinking about time. Um, I want it to look more geological and sort of false depths of Mm -hmm. things so you can see the wood, yet you see two things at once and thinking about changes in time and preciousness and how a lot of precious things come from time and pressure. Um, and as you transition across the table, there's this uh, leather camel that is yeah. a found object and thinking about it as sort of a strange desert scape. And then there's a large jeweled object that looks like a COVID particle right now. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. That's exactly what I said when I saw that. Right. I said- it looks like a COVID particle, but it's, it's, it's a Sputnik gem. And so Sputnik we all know was the first satellite thinking about communication and talking Mm -hmm. and its translation is fellow traveler. 
But then there was also at that era of Sputnik, there was uh, jewelry and decorative arts made Sputnik gems as jewelry and sort of that you could own the preciousness of it. And I always loved the Sputnik gem as like another iteration. So I made a large one thinking about the history of, you know, I'm thinking with the history of decorative arts, the history of communication. Um, How how large would a normal one be? You said you made a a bigger version of it. So a normal normal Sputnik gem would be like something on Oh, like an earring. Okay. Yeah. And mine is like, you know, 20 something inches. And so the idea is that it's just sort of landed there. And then the end of the table is a zigzag sort of cut like tape, which sort of an, an, another theme that runs through the show. And then the, the, the room that this is displayed in is a, is a grid. It's a very structured, hierarchical, craftsman okay. built oak room. And so thinking about how these structures play into layers and structures and organization and disorganization play into it. And then on the mantle, I got an original halftone print from Forbes magazine of the A.O. Smith company's bomb making and had that in the room with another, with a number of other framed images. And another thing that sort of runs through the show and a lot of my recent work is, you know, there's a Hulk cookie jar in the, <laughs> in the fireplace. Yeah. Yeah. And just thinking yeah. about these objects and what meanings they have and like thinking, I, I also look into the history of words a lot. I use the Oxford English dictionary because it can tell us a lot about culture, like when words happened and like thinking about the word incredible, you know, like the incredible Hulk, like incredible, yeah. unbelievable and things that go through a lot of transformations. The Hulk cookie jar is just a bizarre object because Hulk does not demonstrate cookie worthy behavior. You know, it's just these sort of like mind boggling things. So the, and, and also with that still life piece I made, I've been interested in making non-didactic keys that are like, drawn and they could be colored in by children. And there's like a description on the back about loosely how things connect, like the meaning of the skull and the plant life and like a program that you're handed at the exhibit. Yeah. Except for it's pictures and not like MFA speak. Yeah. It's not like, here's exactly what it's about. It's right. And like, there's a little calculator in the, under the piece and it's like, Literally, I'm just playing with like how do things add up? Yeah, you're you're encouraging them to draw their own conclusions too, right? And that there is no one conclusion, right? I mean, you have a you have a concept as an artist, but it also the viewer has a role in the piece to sort of create connect their own dots. Mm-hmm. There's actually another piece in that in the House of Risk that. And now that I understand it better, because when I first saw it, I didn't really have any context. But the the stepladder, which looks, which is an exquisitely technically produced, what looks like your classic Warner aluminum stepladder that I have, and probably most people have, and it's sitting in the bathroom. What is what's the role? Uh, and it's it's done in wood, so I yeah yeah. So what is so what's a, the role? It's a faithful replica of actually my fiberglass stepladder, but okay. you know, same there you go. is, you know, and that, that piece, that piece came ab- ab- about thinking of all of the um, labor and invisible labor that 
that was implicit in owning a house like that and building a house like that, like this labor who was doing the labor um, and making it out of a, a sort of a plain domestic wood. There's no finish on the piece. Um, and it was really interesting, the idea of, of risk with that, because it's a ladder, but it is not a ladder. So it's titled ladder, parentheses, replica. It's a ladder, but it is not a ladder at all, right? Like it's a doppelganger for a ladder. The part of the risk is that it it may break if someone, you know, no one's climbed on it. Um, you didn't climb on it? I didn't climb on it. <laughs> um, and the idea that we need it, you know, like how do you talk about risk within the gallery setting? You actually like we had to, I needed to keep the piece safe you know, and putting it in the bathroom and thinking about order, out of order, order of keeping a house in order, the order that a, that a ladder is climbed, like the whole in and out of order and, and the multiplicity that that also brings. So we had it in this really very ornate bathroom yeah. Um, that was, you know, there was a, a, a bra, you know, like a, a chain across it. So you couldn't actually get out of it. And the bathroom, <laughs> if one looks in the bathroom, like all of the water spigots have been taken out and there's like this wicker chair that is like a toilet cover, you know, it's a, it's a really bizarre, um, bizarre place that, but thinking about order and out of order. It's it's really been fascinating talking to uh, makers, the last couple of makers we've had conversations with, and just the the depth of the conceptual framework they've created in their work. It it makes me feel jealous and simplistic in my approach, but uh, I'm getting over it. Uh- <laughs> Takes all types. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, right? Did you did you make the bear? The stuffed part. Yeah. The- no. Or did you just chop it in half and add So the- this bear has a little bit of a I like have a mild obsession with bears and my friend Vanessa, who I did this show with, um, she's actually like before COVID, she would come visit a bunch. Yeah. Um every she comes to Camp Wisconsin, she lives in Florida, but her uh she knew that I have a bear obsession and I had been, made one bear costume and it didn't really go that well. And she <laughs> knew that I was looking for a, a big bear. So yeah. she brought this bear up from Florida and it lived in our house for a while. One time when she came to visit, um we didn't know exactly when she was gonna land and my sweetheart was out for a run and Vanessa hid under the bear. <laughs> And then my uh-huh. sweetheart got home and I pretended to sit there and Vanessa just raised its arm, you know, and my girlfriend was like, what the fuck is going on? And then <laughs> so this bear like has lived in our house with us for a while. And then originally it was going to become a costume yeah. so that I could shovel my driveway and sit on my couch in a bear costume in the winter because that's what bears do. Oh, I love it. Um, but then I took it to my studio and I decided I wanted to make it taller and incorporate it into this piece. But it's also, I think it's important that this bear was like made in China and was not very easy to take apart because of its poor materiality, yeah. right? Like it, it's very fragile. I was actually envisioning you putting your bear through your bandsaw. You have, you have the, obviously I'm envisioning this huge 36 inch bandsaw and you just push the bear through the bandsaw and cut it in half. And there's this, there's this, 
There's this emotional thing of cutting the bear in half. I did it. I had it strung up between ladders, like trying to figure out where I was going to cut it. And I'm sure that before I actually cut it, I said, Dr. Rosenthal, the surgery, Dr. Rosenthal, the surgery. (laughs) So, uh, so that was the preamble. So now we're going to, now we're going to really start with the actual why make question, which is what was your first memory of actually making something? My first memory of making something, um, my grandfather used to let me hammer nails in the basement. And I think that I would, he would let me hammer nails. And that was the first like action of construction. I have a very, a somewhat unique history in making in that I grew up going to a hands-on educational children's museum where I started. I took my first class when I was five and it was on fire. And I learned how to make sterno cannons and spark machines and matches and rockets. (laughs) God, what what every five-year-old really wants to do. Yes. Absolutely. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like a steam-powered cannon that's made out of a tube and a spark machine was just a simple motor. One of the first things I daydreamed about making when I was probably six, after I knew how to make a simple circuit, was I tried to convince my grandfather that it was when like the third brake light in the back of cars happened, started to happen. Instead of just the two on the back, there was the one in the windshield and his uh, Buick didn't have one. And I was like, Papa, I can make you this thing that has a Christmas light with some wires attached to a battery with thumbtacks and a paperclip switch so that every time you hit the brake, you just reach into the back and hit the paperclip to the thumbtack and the, and the light will come on. I can even find you a red piece of gel. And he was like, no, thank you. (laughs) And I was like, really, Papa? It is no problem for me to make this for you. And he was like, I'll pass. (laughs) You know, because I had no idea of, like, I am in my head, I still imagined it, like, on the back of that thing. I don't know why now as an adult, I'm like, why didn't I run the wires longer and put it on the armrest? Um, (laughs) But the idea was that it would take a one AA battery and I would, like, figure out a way to hold a little piece of, like, gel, the colored light gel, (laughs) So that it would be like a little red light. And my idea, it's like one Christmas light. um, Because I knew how to cut apart Christmas lights and make a lead and use some little wire and wrap it around my thumbtack and push it into a piece of wood. Um, So I started doing stuff like that when I was 10. My mom got me a 7.2 volt cordless Makita drill Uh and jigsaw. And one of the first things I made was I made a little box. And I think I was like, mom, I need to go to a hardware store and buy a hinge, you know, like little hinges. And it's all like nailed in. And it's so I would make things like that. And I just I 
clamps weren't a thing I had. And I was cutting these tiny pieces with my tiny hands and my tiny jigsaw and my little drill. And my parents are not mechanically inclined people. So I don't think there really was very much. I mean, I think my mom was around, but wasn't really supervising me. I would do it in the backyard. But from a very early age, my my grandfather would visit once a summer, but other than that, like the little tool area and all the scraps in the basement, I could just do whatever I wanted. And I would bring stuff home from the children's museum. By the time I was in third grade, I would work there three times a week. <clears throat> so I would do things like try and make my own water guns with really simple like pumps and stuff. And I made all sorts of stuff. I was a strange kid. No, it sounds like you were, uh, it sounds like you were, you were born making. Yeah, I was, it's definitely like, it's a huge part of my identity that I've been doing woodworking for a long time, like that I learned how to, like I would carve things on a simple disc sander, uh, like a DIY motor, but I'm actually making one in my studio now just like using a bandsaw at a very young age. I mean, we also did a lot of dumb stuff. The kids who I worked with, like when air nailers first, oh my God, (laughs) learning how to use the air hose, like don't jump out behind a door and spray your boss in the face with an air hose. They don't like it. (laughs) But it's funny. Yeah. My boss had a temper and only had one eye and an eye patch. And I've seen the underside of that eye patch more than I cared to. Right. But you learned. Yeah, I learned. I learned. We would hold the 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 safety on an air nailer back with our finger. Oh yeah, pop 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 pop. And like, yeah, the, those are the most valuable lessons you learn as a kid. Is like, how far can you push the envelope before the shit hits the fan? And you get oh, yeah. right up to the edge, and then you stop. I learned how to make big fireballs out of sawdust using a ladder and a stolen lighter. I would steal oh. lighters from Walgreens. <laughs> And then go dig under the table saw, like an archaeologist, see all the different colors before oh, that, oh, yeah. there, get, get some kid to be complicit with me and be like, okay, I'm going to open this bag. You you have the lighter ready. And it'd be like, <laughs> and I liked the noise just as much as I liked anything else. And I mean, I would play with spray paint. I was the kid who like spray painted my shoes. Oh, right. Yeah. And of course, you put the lighter in front of the can of spray paint. Oh, yeah. Or hairspray or anything. Hairspray did the job. The hairspray did the job. So it sounds like your parents were let you be adventuresome. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, definitely like if I wanted to skateboard, I had to wear all sorts of pads, but you know, in a lot of different ways for sure. Okay, they they didn't um, let you they didn't let you run with scissors. They didn't let me run with scissors, but, but like you could work on a bandsaw. That's crazy. But you could work on a bandsaw. I could work on a bandsaw, and that's sort of has my interest. That's a lot of my interest in risk now mm-hmm. as an adult. Um, is how much we let things risk. People don't like to get into conversations about risk because it has come to imply negligence or known negligence. Right. So assessing risk, like in that House of Risk show. I was thinking of the title in in terms of thinking with David Pye and who's like one of the woodworking theory people. There aren't very many woodworkers who write theory, but David Pye is one of them. And he, he's also um, just so step back. He's a he's an English woodcarver, I believe. He's a really well known English woodcarver that has written one of the seminal books on theory that sits on my bookshelf, and I can't name it. He wrote The Nature of 
uh, the nature and aesthetics of design. Yeah, he wrote that's... a lot of a lot of books, and he talks about the workmanship of certainty and the workmanship of risk. In my take of it, you need a mixture of both, and that the workmanship of certainty is more robotic, and the workmanship of risk requires presence and thought is far more science, you know, has closer links in, in my reading of it to science and educated guesses um, and not like wild risk, but, you know, in risk taking um, and using your knowledge to figure things out. Um, but the one of the curators was like, risk, 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 you know, why is this? How is this show a risk? And I was thinking about the house of risk in terms of like the engineering that came out of the AO Smith company was very forward thinking. And like my approach to woodworking is fairly unconventional, but then I was like, well, we can always turn it up a little bit. And so we made without telling the curators, I made a large scale teeter totter and put it in a room and I got a little corporate sponsorship from Carpet One. So we put all this carpet padding down and these carpets so that like it wouldn't hurt the floors and like it was secure, but you can't, you're still, and I really like teeter-totters. I've made a lot of large scale teeter-totters. I think it's good to be in conversation and physically off balance and try to level things out. Do There's a lot of fun things you can do and a lot of things you learn on a teeter-totter and being off balance and finding yeah. balance for a moment. And it was really interesting because people could, and we had these big stuffed bear heads that people could wear on the teeter-totter, of course. And oh, then wow. these like carpet things so people could sit around. And it got to be played on the night of the opening. And after that, I got the email that said, we've talked to our insurance agent and we are not sure what, I was like, exactly, let's have this conversation. Like, <laughs> Is the risk is too great? Okay, what do we do now? Uh, well, the risk was all about wearing the bear heads. They didn't want you teeter tottering while wearing a bear head. That was oh yeah, I mean, the bear heads actually are like a really great mask because they're still in my life. Um, again, from my friend Vanessa. Except for, I really want to drive around in them. Except for, you can't check your blind spot. Yeah, because yeah. your head just turns and not the whole mask. Well, there's probably way more protection than an N95 mask. They're great. I've worn them as a mask. They're great for like popping over to people's houses and doing a little distanced thing. They're yeah, like, they're great. Guess who's here? Oh, it's Sylvie. <laughs> right, it's Bearhead. Obviously, it's Sylvie. But you know, so then we got into this conversation about I was like, okay, well, what are your concerns? You know, and the concerns were that yeah. someone would get injured or fall into a window or you know, and are these real? Are they how aggressively will people play? Do they need a minder? What are the ways that we can mitigate it? And you know, and I knew it was going to end up that the door was going to be cordoned off, which did yeah. happen, but yeah. I was like the remnants is still there. Right? Like this is risk activated. This risk is too great. You, your insurance agent says this risk is too yeah. great. But that's a part of the piece. You right. activated a, that conversation. Right. I mean, exactly. Well, and actually, it would have been interesting if you could have convinced the insurance company that only one person can be on the teeter totter at a time. So it's an utterly incomplete conversation. You can't really be, you can't really activate the teeter totter with a single person, you can't hold a conversation with yourself. Well, I'm not going to get into the philosophical, but uh, <laughs> I, but it's like, so there's zero risk in one person being on the teeter-totter. 
and there's zero adventure, but it's totally, it's totally acceptable. <laughs> you know, and then, I mean, but huh. compare it to the stairs. Yeah. There's risk in stairs, no matter what you do up, down, or you're, you're risking, you're risking your life either way. <laughs> right. That like you're, that is it a projection or you're going too far. Or you've heard stories, right? These are layers of concern. And that's why we did yeah. like the layers of things, like all of the right. work sort of flows with like layers of understanding and interpretation. Some of your early work, actually the very first piece that I ever saw of yours is Equilibrium Balance 3. Mm-hmm. And I think I saw it in the Asheville Art Museum. Um, up on a wall there. And so this is, this is work that you did like what, maybe 2008. So that's the first piece I saw of yours and some of the snake teapots talk about your old work and some of your older work. And I mean, obviously it's changed a lot in the last 12 or 14 years or so. Talk about that, that growth. I mean, it was different. I really like balance and gravity and like that work came out of, came out of that. But so, so the work that I made, that you're talking about that I made in Asheville, those all had, they were like, had a lot of parts and were all these like little pieces that had birds with gears and yeah, that they were, um, I felt like I, I, the balance pieces were really fun. They have an unbelievable amount of parts and I was still making things like, I would say I'm still a meticulous builder, but it's it's changed that the I got some good feedback from someone once during that time at a show that like I was thinking that the air quote perfectness perfection in it yeah. would make it less distracting, but that actually became distracting. I think that it had to do with a lot of things. I think it had to do with being a woman in a male dominated field, a queer woman in a male dominated field mm-hmm. that I just had to consistently show up better and stronger than anybody else. Because still to this day, like I present a lot younger than I am any dude with a beard and you, you throw on a plaid shirt, they get more credit than I do just walking in the door. And so needing to go over the top with my construction and my finish and all of that was something that I felt that I needed to do. And it wasn't like a pissing contest, but it just like in order to be taken seriously, just like I could never wear a skirt to an opening. I always have to wear pants. When I left Asheville and came to Madison for the first time, I really wanted my work to change. Like it felt like it was, um, because a lot of it was kinetic. I I did these like crazy full scale drawings. I had to figure out the kinetics and did full schematics. And I was like, a little bit just like exhausted of it and mm-hmm. wanted to. So those are pretty complicated pieces. I mean, I imagine it, yeah. it's not like you slapped that together in a week. No, you know? <laughs> they were very complicated pieces. And it felt like I was like clenching something too hard. And I wanted to like yeah. give myself a break. And I came out to Madison in early 2010 for an artist residency at the university. And I remember... It was, you know, I had sort of, I moved out of 
the shop in Asheville. And I was like, did I just shut my business? Like, what did I do? Why did I do this? Um, but I knew I needed to either like get a full-time assistant and like buy in harder in Asheville, but I didn't really, I like, wasn't feeling it. Um, and I just, I, there's this Mary Oliver poem, wild geese, that means a lot of things to a lot of people. And one of the lines in it is let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And I wanted wow. to make um, a giraffe and I just let myself. Um, but I, I went to, I went to uh, Madison with part of a fish boat that I was always sort of the last on my list because yeah. my gallery wanted the mechanical birds and like da, 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 da. Um, but I had had a show in Atlanta and fell in love with a grouper and decided I'd wanted to make a fish. And it was always sort of on the back burner, but I finished that fish boat mm -hmm. um, in Madison and it was really great. And it was sort of, for me, a loosening up, even though everything is still fairly tight. I just gave myself more license to build. It's a loosening up in your mind. Yeah, to loosen it up in like no more full scale schematic drawings. Yeah, like the yeah. giraffe was done with like shitty computer search printouts and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, just like letting my eyeballing body... stuff and yeah, and like just making. And it was really, it was, it was great to, it was pretty freeing to do. Some of those pieces around the giraffe, like Warren. Warren is five feet. I know. I Carrie and yeah, I delivered you, him. We had oh, our, right. we had Warren in the back of our truck. That's right. You all came up to Madison. To we we would we would open the back up and peek and be like, "Are you okay? Are you okay there, buddy?" And you know, of course, we had him all wrapped up, so we couldn't see his ears and his face. But we made sure that that was a fun drive. Yeah, that so was Warren, some of my starting carving. Like that was my. And that whale and that the ram, and I'm not using the correct names for these pieces, but those pieces. I'm looking at them right now. The ram, I believe, is called Journey to an Empty City. Uh, the rat, uh, what is the rabbit? I hope Warren. for our three loyal Warren. listeners who are searching right. frantically and while the, they're listening. The grouper is out to sea. Um, so, anyways. And uh, that the whale, the whale. Yeah. Uh, talk about the, the, the scale of that and pulling it off. Yeah. So with the whale, with, with each piece, I was trying to challenge myself a little bit more. Like with Warren, the rabbit piece, it's the first, the giraffe and the fish boat had been bilaterally symmetrical, split okay. down the middle, mirror mm -hmm. images. And I wanted with the ears, they're like, they're different. Oh, yeah. And figuring out how to join them and which parts I could hold on to and shape, <laughs> you know, and how I would do the joinery. You know, because it's still all just woodworking joinery. And then with the ram, I was thinking of like, maybe these things will become marionettes and movable. And then, you know, thinking up new construction techniques was really fun and challenging. Um, and with the ram, it's the first one that I changed. I stretched it, you know, so it's yeah. it's it's a stretch ram. Um, and <laughs> then with the whale... The whale head is was like pushing my personal physical limit. Like that whale head, I was in California at the time making it, and it was like getting across the studio with that whale head, like banging into every door, you know, like that I was at my personal physical limit, which there's a couple times 
in different pieces that I actually need to like come up right against it, like, and feel my physicality while I am making these bigger pieces. And then, so the whale comes apart into like seven pieces. And I wish I had talk about needing good photography. That's one piece that I don't have fantastic photographs of, but it, it, it breaks into seven pieces and makes this like really nice whale fall when it's just in pieces. So I'm like, oh, it can exist as one piece and exist as parts, you know, that it could exist in a number of different ways. Right. And that was never intentional. That was just the process of trying to figure out how to build something so big. Right. Yep. So at what point in time did were you actually building homes with Doug Sigler and Penland? Um, because it seems to be that's an important uh, piece of this puzzle because so many of these structures, Warren and Out to Sea and Journey to an Empty City, the Ram piece, are all very architectural in nature and have a lot to do with, with house building, which is what you were doing with Doug Sigler, right? Mm-hmm. And- mm-hmm. So out of undergrad... I did not know Doug Sigler at RIT. I had Andy Buck and Rich Tannen. Uh, My first year at RIT was Doug's first year of retirement. Um, But I started to go to Penland. Andy Buck had been a core student at Penland and encouraged me to go for a summer. I got a work-study scholarship, had a blast. Um, I took a metal class. I went to welding school before I went to woodworking school. Um, And... Uh, I took a hollow form construction class and we made the downhill derby. There was a down 4th of July downhill derby race. Uh-huh. Um, and I drove the car cause I laughed the hardest while driving this thing. Um, but I, I made friends with people <laughs> you there. Laughed? And Is that what you said? You laughed. I laughed the hardest. We called it the tetanus express. Um, oh, the tetanus express. <laughs> uh, oh, and, um, so I ended up working at Penland the next summer. My yeah. ju- after my junior year, I worked at Penland and I met um I think I met Doug once. And then the next year, no, it was the next year after my senior year I worked for Penland the whole summer, worked, traded. I didn't get paid. Then I was like, "Oh, I like it here. I want to learn how to build houses. I know how to with my education, I know how to do everything the hardest way and like the most meticulous way, but not a way that I can earn a living." And I've always wanted to learn how to build houses. And Doug knows what I know because he designed the program that I went to. Um, So I went up onto his job site and asked him for a job. And he gave me a job for $10 an hour helping him. So I went up north for a minute, came back down, and started working for Doug. We started with a house that was, it had just been dried in. And it was a great experience just learning how to be less precious in a lot of ways with material, but still very respectful of it. I feel like I learned a lot of things about trust that in both in myself and other people, like walking on roof joists, you have to trust that if you put them in, you did the best you could or trust other people that they did the best they could because you can't check everything. And in my process, in my work, when you're like, why the F did I do it that way? You're like, slow your roll. You did the best you could with the information that you had. Now keep going. 
you know, and I very clearly remember having to cut this, like, we we're making a solid wood mantle and it was like 16 quarter cherry, this bit. And I was like, got to get two mantles. Like, where do I cut it? Where do I cut it? <laughs> is the biggest, most expensive board I've ever had to cut. Ah, Just cut. what if I cut it wrong in like measure, 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 cut, keep going, you know, cause that's what was needed. And Doug and I, um, we very much agree that we would have been oil and water at RIT. We would not have probably not have gotten along very well, but he became the father I never wanted, and I was the daughter he never asked for. Or I was the daughter he never wanted, and he was the father I never asked for. Um, <laughs> and we had a really great – he was truly a mentor. And we had conversations about what that means versus a boss, which is a very simple exchange for labor, and a mentor. And then I went out to California to do a residency. We finished one house. And then, you know, deciding what I was going to do after I had gotten a different residency, just trying to think of like what made sense in life. He was like, when I moved back to Penland, I was there for about a year and a half. I left for half a year or so and then came back. The deal was that I would work 20 hours a week for him and 40 hours a week for myself. So I worked for him and that was when I started to trade him for shop space and started acquiring my own tools. But he held me. I think the one of the important things from Doug that I learned was like Doug really held me accountable to my own dreams. And that's what a true mentor does through listening and encouragement that he did that for a lot of people, you know, that he would help you out and give you work. But you also had to do your own damn work, you know, that and leaving working for him and moving to Asheville was a hard job because I loved being up there and I loved working for Doug. You know, we built one full house from the ground up. That was our deal. Yeah, I knew I needed to do it to like try out being, you know, not working construction. But you also learn a lot, like talk about important world skills, like drywall very important skill <laughs> yeah, no. for sure. you know like trim and painting very important mm-hmm. you know that it's um you learn a lot of things fixing a house like what's behind your walls I mean every artist should know when you go install at someone's house what something is I mean I think working for people like I was Wendy Mariama's studio assistant for a little bit working for people has been was one of the most important things I've done and I wanted to say that you wrote a very touching memorial that's on the the Penland website um, to Doug. Uh, I believe he died what two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, April. So, yeah, yeah. Too soon, too soon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What one of the things you say in that you use the term "stick that landing." I love it. And does that just mean like you know, obviously trust what you're doing, but have confidence in where you're going. Have confidence in where you're going and finish the job. Yeah. You know, like you can't, you know, like in some things I can feel my, you know, it's like when you're reading a really good book and you slow down towards the end, you're like, I don't want it to stop, (laughs) you know, but there's some projects where I'm like, am I slowing down because I'm nervous about the next thing I'm going to do? Because I just don't want this to end because I don't really know where this end is, you know, like how you think through those things and just be like, you know what? just stick the landing, 
you know, you got to finish it. You got to push through the fear. You got to come out, you know, even intact and standing, you know, that follow. And also that follow through is really important, you know, and to be accountable to yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow. What, what a great thing to learn from somebody and to have it not just like read about it. Oh, that's cool. You know, but to have like somebody hold you to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what one of the great things having my studio on site is that he would, you know, he would come and check in on what I'm doing and he'd be like, okay, kid, now like get on to the next thing. Like you can't drag it out. You can't (laughs) drag it out, you know, and just like on to the next thing or just get it done. Right. And and also, I mean, woven through all of that is just the again, the whole notion of risk. I mean, Mm -hmm. take take the risks and realize when you're flying through the air you know, look for the ground and, and, and hope you land it. And if you mm-hmm. don't, you, you get many other opportunities because move on. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I would, it's, it's interesting. Cause I have, even still, I have questions that I would, are my like, shit, I need to ask Doug this question. This happened oh. like a couple of weeks ago. It hadn't happened in a while. And I called one of his good friends, someone who he introduced me to and talked through. I was like, this is a question I I needed, you know, like I wanted to ask Doug, I am going to ask you, you know, and then there, there's that additional connection because there are a number of us who are, we're all sort of like brought together by Doug who are, you know, like you don't create, it's like more than making a living, it's making a life, you know, is what Doug, you know, surrounding yourself with people and being a good community member and being available. And like, so I, I called up my friend Terry Hunt. And he was really great. And just like having him assess how I was thinking through a situation was a really great, um, it's a great backstop. I mean, just thinking of the people who have so much knowledge and when they pass away, you're like, that's a whole body of knowledge. Like, I'm very appreciative that I got to witness and glean some of it, but it's a lifetime of knowledge that that he had, you know, like he would go, you know, testify before juries about wood. And I'm just, you know, like asking questions about, you know, like mechanics or how tools, you know, you're just like cutting edges of just being like, am I, if I'm getting (laughs) this mark here, like one thing is because of this, but this, is this because of this or is it because of that? Or is it like, and I set up these controls trying to do what, you know, like, even in your studio, just like when you hit a bump being like one control at a time, like change one thing at a time so you can assess the situation, you know, and, and figure out, figure out your problem solving. Right. And when the other thing is, you know, you know, people probably look at Warren and some of those other things as your greatest hits and they want you to continually make them. And as an artist, you want to move on to what's next. What's, what's, What's driving your your heart? What's what's the next concept you want to reach? Yeah, so you're not going to play the same song year after year yeah. after year. I mean, that's yeah, ex- exactly boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm I teach people of all ages and always have, but I think the best way to diversify the field is to teach kids um, because they do not know it's a possibility or an opportunity, and it's so empowering. Like. I like teaching kids how to use knives, you know, and that's a risk thing, right? Like I will take that risk to do it. And I have a client in town who's really great. And because schools aren't starting, they want 
I'm going to teach a little woodworking class to their pod, you know? And for me, that's feels more expansive and like thinking about other things that I can do within my community, like just all the things that I take for granted that I'm comfortable doing, such as, you know, I can fix most, a lot of the things in my house, but say if I were a queer POC person, a lot of the people who repair things are cis men and a lot older, but I operate in the world of cis white men and I'm very comfortable around them, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm real comfortable. I will make a joke. I will, I will turn the awkward up because I really don't care anymore. Like that person who tried to like, who felt that I needed to overperform to show up isn't here and isn't there anymore. I've grown out of that, right? Like I know how to talk to people who do repair in my house. And like, how can I offer up some of these things that I get from living in the world of cis white men? Because I consistently get like, did you make that all by yourself? And I was like, I know, I'm so shocked. I don't have a dick and I can do it. But will you show me how to turn the table saw on with your dick? (laughs) Wait, that's not how it works. I thought that was how it worked because don't you need it? Isn't that what they're used for, turning table saws on? Well, I mean, it's the... You you measure with it? Do you measure that board with your dick? (laughs) Like, I'll leave it there with a pregnant silence and see who, like... Good for you. I don't care anymore. Like, I will woodwork around you. Like, my neighbors, my studio neighbors are like, not many women with a 12-foot ladder. I'm like... Well, I got a twelve foot ladder, yeah. and I can well, use it. You so. should, you should see my, you should see my sixteen foot ladder. You know, and it's like, it's like I bet me and my sweetheart have more table saws than you too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think the whole world is, is 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 slowly but surely coming to a reckoning. Not fast enough with the whole, you know, white white male orientation that we've suffered under, but. Um, mm-hmm. Well, he's not helping at all. That's for damn sure. He's definitely not helping. But in a um, way, he is because things are boiling more. Oh, they're they're boiling all right. I mean, uh, they're. And boiling I hate to say that he caused that, but I mean, if if he well, had to be around to make it boil, then visible. It's yeah. bl- what used to be able to be partially hidden is now, now blatantly visible. Yeah. You know, right. and I think it's like for me. I want to be able to like do things in my direct community and empower people and thinking about how my shop can do that. Like now that I have the more space technically, like I can have eight people in here safely masked. I'm not sure. I'm not comfortable with that right now, but like, what are ways that I can, you know, there's a lot of people that I don't want to see on the side of the street with a flat tire. And I thought that way for a long time, but like, what do we do about it now? Like you can watch YouTube, but you can't ask YouTube a question very effectively to like run classes through my studio about like, we've been, me and some friends have been like collecting ideas of like, what are super common things that you would just want to know how to do? Put put together a basic toolkit, you know, you know, and how to change a screen on a screen door. Yeah. Like stuff like that. And also to empower kids, like fix a toilet. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's the most important part of teaching is empowering people to be able mm-hmm. to do things for themselves. Because this mean. stuff is it's not 
and it shouldn't be all magical and untouchable. People should be able to do things. I know what you're doing is hard. Yeah. You know, and like I say that to my students, like I'm, when I demo this, it is going to look easier. Yeah. Than I make, than it's going to be. But that's because I have 20 years on you, you know, and like, it's hard. I believe in all of you, you know, that like, it's a both and, you know, and like, you practice, you'll, you'll get it out of it. It's time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done some private lessons with folks in the neighborhood here and, you know, they're like, man, you're so good at this. I was like, I've been doing it for 20 years. You know, Mm -hmm. you've been doing it for two weeks. Mm -hmm. What you've done is amazing. Let's keep on doing it. And yeah, you know, don't worry about the mistake that it doesn't matter that you can see that. And if you make a mistake, you never make that one again. You'll, you'll, or you do, or you do, or you're, or you're like, I haven't done this in a while and I know I'm not supposed to do this part for a part I don't remember. And, and then, then you, you do it and now you're like, oh, fuck, I remember exactly why yeah. you don't do it. Like yeah. That. And, and you mean, cut it short and you go, oh, that was it. Oh, guess I got to do it again or make the table shorter or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the most powerful message in all of this is that, you know, we're here, but for the blink of an eye. Oh, absolutely. And you, and you need to make some investment. And, and actually participating in your life. And it's not linear. It's difficult. It's challenging. And, you know, I think about my life as a musician. I mean, I've been playing for 35 years and I still suck. I mean, but that, that hasn't stopped me. And, you know, talk about making mistakes. I make the same mistakes as a musician over and over and over again. Yeah, go, yeah that <laughs> doesn't work. And it never has worked. But Eventually, I'm going to learn that, you know, maybe I can make it work. That's the thing. I mean, as you become more advanced more advanced a player, you go, I'm going to figure out how to make that sour note work. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. And also uh, in woodworking, I think that like on the idea of repair, the idea is you can make a mistake and most likely you can repair it. It yeah, may be yeah. two steps back or it's two steps to the side, but repair is also such an underrated skill. Like. Yeah. When do you repair or when do you like, how do you make those decisions? Is it based on waste? Is it based on time or is it based Mm -hmm. on skill? Like how much, you know, like there are so many things I stress out about, like the wood in my waste bin, like we burn everything, but you're like, that's an annual ring. An annual ring in a tree represents a year of transpiration, a fucking year of transpiration and work and labor. And then to treat it casually you know, you don't want to be too casual, but you don't want to be too precious. Yeah, you know, right. know that everything makes waste. Everything makes waste every day. You know, like everything living does that. And that one thing I try to tell my students, and it works with college students because they're old enough, is that woodworking at like a lot of things are about relationship of parts. And by this time, we know relationships are complicated very and difficult and involve a lot of risk i mean i think if i could sum up this whole conversation and it's been a wonderful conversation is it's about the potential of risk yep and be open to it so uh, and and i think focusing on both the word potential and risk because potential is also a very important word in the house of risk because potential is always forward-looking potential is never now it's always in the future yeah so so it's been a been a wonderful conversation, and I'd like to thank you for uh, Silly Rodenthal for joining us on Why Make Why Make Why Make Why Make. Thank you for having me. 
You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.